Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Good to see you. You too. I'm excited today. Great I'm, guest. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I say that every time we record, don't yeah. I? But I'm really excited this time. Um, Dr. Patrick McGrath has such an extensive background. Um, I'm so excited to have him on our show and talk about stuff that even we don't really know a lot about, maybe because of the different calls that we have taken. But um, Dr. Patrick McGrath is a licensed psychologist. Um, he specializes in the treatment for anxiety, OCD, school refusal, PTSD. He is also the chief clinical officer for NOCD or NOCD. It's a platform for the treatment of OCD, leading teletherapy services across the world. He's also a lead psychologist at Amita Health. He opened their intensive outpatient partial hospital and residential treatment programs for anxiety, school refusal, OCD, substance abuse, and PTSD. Um, gosh, he has such a plethora of, of background. He has co-authored numerous articles, and he has also written a book called The OCD Answer Book. A great guest today. Yes. So nice to have you here, Dr. Patrick McGrath. Thank nice you. to meet you. We call you Dr. McGrath, Patrick. That's e- better. Either. Fred works. Yeah. Too, whatever you, <laughs> we always whatever feel you like, like yeah. you know, it's such an informal, informal atmosphere at this yep. podcast. We that, try anyway. Yeah, you know, just not just, Pat. That's no. any, yeah, that. That's my dad. So. Do, you, do you want to talk Got about, it. before we get started, how we met? We could. We could. I mean, <laughs> you know, boy. Go ahead. What's that? your recollection? Uh, the Paleos. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and uh, my best friend, Tony Paleo, and his sisters. I went to grammar school with his sisters. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have known each other from hanging out at the uh, Paleo family since... 1985. Okay, you didn't have to give an exact wow. year. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't so age us. That's when we started high school, was 1985. Yeah. So. Um, the funny thing wow. was, I remember very vividly having a conversation about how you wanted to be a psychologist. Yeah, I knew back then. In I know. high school? Yeah. You knew oh, in yeah. high school? Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I knew it about freshman, middle of freshman year, that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is really something, because of all professions... To have that insight when you're, what are you, 14, 15 as a freshman? Uh, well, I was, I was one of those weird wow. babies, so I was 13. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. He was super <clears throat> smart then and still super wow. smart. Yeah, yeah, because I wanted to be a psychologist too, but we see how well that worked out. Well, not, I, you shouldn't. Don't, don't, there's uh, still hope. There's yeah. still hope. There's, well, there's here always. we are. Yeah. yeah. But that's really something. How life takes different paths. But yeah. it's amazing that, yeah, he followed through and he's so amazing you're probably one of the most fascinating people doctor wise that i've ever listened to well thank you appreciate that a wealth of knowledge yes so what should we talk about today you have we have uh dr mcgrath with his wealth of knowledge um well anxiety is always fun for me oh anxiety anxiety is a lot of fun it's kind of what i do and it's sort of the uh topic of the hour now as we're sort of sliding Mm -hmm. into a new pandemic chapter of yes, sorts. Agreed. Um, sure. I feel like the phones are heating up again with people, you know, thinking, uh, here we go again, even though it's not a total, here we go again. But uh, I think that's a perfect way to start. Yeah. But sure. I also feel too that um, anxiety is kind of a 
comorbidity to other illnesses. Of course. Um, They seem to run hand in hand. You have bipolar or you suffer from, excuse me, bipolar, you suffer from anxiety. You suffer from ADHD, you suffer from anxiety. Mm -hmm. So anxiety seems to keep with every other illness that's out there. Yeah, I've, I've had interesting discussions with people around, say, depression, right? And which came first, you know, the chicken or the mm-hmm. egg argument. Yeah, right, of this. always and, a question. And a lot of people think depression comes first and then you get anxious about things. But I've, I've always looked at it a little bit opposite. I've thought about this from the definition of depression, which requires one of two things for the first two diagnoses through the DSM-5, our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that we use for diagnosing. And it's either you feel depressed or you have a loss of interest or pleasure in things you once enjoyed. Now, if you're anxious about something and now you don't do it anymore, you've lost the pleasure from it. And could that be the source now of depression? Right. Mm -hmm. So I always approach it from what led you to be anxious about something? And could that been your delve into the feeling of depression because you're not receiving that interest or pleasure that you used to get from that experience due to the anxiety you now have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Makes total sense. Yes. I try. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we had you on the show. Well, thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... Anxiety, of course, the most common mental health issue out there, right? Major depressive disorder, the number one diagnosed thing in terms of all the diagnoses. But as a class of disorders, you're looking at anxiety disorders being the most common experience that humans will have. So you've got your panic issues, you've got your phobias, and then social anxiety. Social phobia is carved out of that a little bit. You've got generalized anxiety. And in the previous diagnostic manuals, you had OCD and you had trauma built in there. The new diagnostic manual has pulled trauma out into its own diagnostic category as well as OCD and related disorders into their own category as well, too. And there, there's whole debates about the pros and cons of that experience. But if you're you're thinking about it, anxiety is something we experience every day and, frankly, can be healthy, right? Yeah, I mean, they always say it's good to have a little anxiety. Yeah, you know, there's, yeah, Everyone has a little, it's a good thing. It kind of gets you going. Absolutely. Yerkes and Dobson in the early 1900s showed that curve that people are familiar with, where if you have no anxiety or tons of anxiety, you feel you perform equally poor, but if you have a middle level of anxiety, it actually, you know, propels your performance into doing better. So you want to have that edge that the anxiety can create and it does work for you. But when it gets to a point where it's overwhelming, now too much of a quote unquote good thing in this experience or not enough of it, both get in the way of, of your being able to perform at your highest potential. So I try to help people figure out that sweet spot. Now, of course, many people with anxiety disorders want to approach therapy and say, well, I don't want to feel any anxiety ever whatsoever, ever again. And I say, well, that, that's not the goal of treatment, right? That's not what mm-hmm. we're going to do for people. We want to get you to a point where that anxiety is actually working for you and not getting in the way. But I would never want to take all anxiety away from somebody. Because is there even such a works. thing? Does anyone have no anxiety? I've not met them yet. I mean, may, I, they I may always wonder there. that. I don't know. I uh, always wonder. I mean, I'm someone I I'm dipped in every day to anxiety, but I've never, I I don't know. Is there someone who's just so, you know, Uh, well, I'd like to meet them. And if they are learn their secrets, because I I myself don't 
don't go a day without experiencing mm-hmm. some kind of anxiety or various feelings. You know, we're not, we're not robots. The goal to have no feelings is not the goal, right? The goal mm-hmm. to be able to experience a range of emotion and learn how to handle that emotion is really what we want to get people through on a day-to-day basis. I guess, yeah, and I guess if you had no anxiety, then you'd probably be depressed. <laughs> you, you could be, right? <laughs> because you'd just be, you know... Yeah. You well, could have isn't it a safety warning bell too? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it, you know, it works for you in that kind of sense as well too. You want that spidey sense kind of tingling yeah. a little bit in situations. Mm-hmm. You want to know that uh, you need to get revved up for some mm-hmm. kind of situation. Uh, I think if you if you look at even people who have played the same role over and over again on Broadway or something like that, they talk about. When, when they don't feel that gut feeling anymore, it's time to walk away from that role. Really? You know? that's, oh. that's an interesting, yeah. that's an interesting yeah. fact. Yeah. You want that little bit of stage fright, right, mm-hmm. before you go out on stage. You want that, that kind of buildup of feeling. That, that drives the experience for you. Mm. And when you don't have that anymore, you're probably not putting your all into the whole thing. It's just kind of a rote more experience now than it is anything else. Wow. So... Can we simplify it a little bit for people who are listening to us for, you know, parents, ca- caregivers, maybe maybe themselves? How does one know if they have a bad anxiety or where they need to maybe talk to someone? Sure. When when it's to the point that it's starting to interfere, you know, you're you're making decisions based on that gut feeling more than most people do. I mean, all of us make some gut feeling decisions. There's a gut check that goes out all the time, right? Yes. So, so I'm not, I'm not discounting that experience. But when the gut check is getting more and more to the point that I'm isolating more than the rest of the people I know, I'm taking longer to do things than the rest of the people I know. There's more steps that are involved in it. There's more checking. There's, and for me, the thing that I focus on a lot, there's more safety behaviors that are appearing. So I identify five safety behaviors that I always assess with people. The first one is avoidance. If I start avoiding things out of anxiety, it's because I'm going to feel better when I don't have to face that fear and sit in that discomfort, right? And what do I learn over time? Well, if I want to feel better, I keep avoiding things. So my life starts to get smaller and smaller. Number two, I start seeking more reassurance about things from everybody. I need more and more people telling me that I'll be fine and everything will be okay in order to get the same feeling that I had about it yesterday. And every day we need a little bit more reassurance than we did the day before. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So we have that. Number three, you see uh, a lot of distraction. So I I may be afraid of flying, right? So what am I going to do because I have to fly? Well, I'm going to do a couple of shots before I get on the plane, and I'll take a few benzodiazepines once I get on, and I'll sit in the middle seat so I can hold hands with people. And I'm an atheist, but I'll say a rosary. Why not? I'm just going to cover all the bases and make sure everything's okay. And uh, I'm going to put a book in front of me so that I don't see the flame shooting around the steel tube of death I find myself hurtling through the sky in. And I'm going to put my noise-canceling headphones on so I don't hear that announcement of Mayday, we're going down. And when I get off the plane, I say, whew, man, it's a good thing I did all that stuff or else I would have never survived the flight. Oh, I had to distract myself through the whole experience in order to get through it. Yeah. The fourth one is substance use and alcohol. A big one. You know, yeah. Big yeah. one. Big, big. Self-medicating. Immediate gratifier for a lot of people, right, to get that immediate gratification of just zoning out or for some people staying awake, right? If you have post-traumatic stress disorder and experience a lot of nightmares, you might use a lot of cocaine in order to stay awake so that you don't sleep, so you don't have nightmares. 
But if you have a lot of flashbacks during the day, you might take a lot of marijuana and alcohol to knock yourself out all the time so that you're not awake, so that you don't have flashbacks. And then finally comes compulsions. So if you have obsessive compulsive disorder, which we'll talk about at some point here, I know too, uh, you do the instantaneous gratification of neutralization of any intrusive thought or image or urge that you're experiencing by doing some kind of compulsion in order to get yourself through it and not have the quote unquote bad thing happen. So when you've got avoidance, reassurance, distraction, substance use, and compulsions on the rise, that to me is a sign there's a lot of anxiety that's going on. Yeah, certainly sounds like it. Serious. Yeah, which can be ex extremely debilitating mm -hmm. is what you're, what you're saying. It starts to of course. become a hindrance in your regular day-to-day -day life. Yeah, well, you know, you and I in the past have talked about school anxiety, school refusal. Yes. So there's an avoidance experience right there. I'm going to avoid going to school. And what's rewarding? Well, when I stay home, I don't feel bad. So what do I learn? If I want to feel good, I stay home. If I want to feel bad, I go to school. Right. So now that's reinforcing to stay home. And if I do have to go to school, like I'm forced to, I'm going to cry the whole time there and I'm going to ask for a lot of reassurance. And if I need you, will you be there? And I'm going to text you all day long. Will you answer the text? And what if you don't answer the test? Does that mean you're dead? Or the, you know, all the worst case scenario then kind of experiences. Because anxiety is not about, eh, it might be kind of bad, sort of. It's always awful, horrible, catastrophic, worst case scenario kinds of things that are going to happen to somebody, right? Yeah. So let's say a parent, because I know school refusal, big topic of especially our listeners, I know, you know, they tune into all these things. What would you say to a parent that comes to you about a grade school age kid that's refusing school, it's anxiety driven, like mm -hmm. you're saying, what are some of the steps that, that you take at the beginning? What should they do? Well, first you so, always... You know, the agony of like, ah, oh, this kid won't go to school day after yeah. day, then you realize I need help with this. Please don't say call the police. Uh, no, I'd, I'd prefer that not. Okay. Yeah. Not, because that happens often. Uh, of course it does. But the, that, that the first thing they do is they pick up the phone and they call the parents. The parents. And mm -hmm. they call 911 and say, little Johnny refuses to go to school. And we show up and say, we can't force this child to go to school. Right. It's not, he hasn't broken the law. Mm -hmm. the, the first thing I try to do, of course, is, is just set straight. Our goal is for little Johnny, we'll call him that today. Little okay. Johnny is to go to school. That, that's the goal. Now, I want to assess what's happening at home when little Johnny isn't in school. Is, is little Johnny laying in bed in his pajamas on, on his phone and playing video games and all those things? Because if that's the case, that's where I start, right? Yes. So if you're not going to be at school, you're at least going to be sitting at the kitchen table. And mm -hmm. you're not going to be in your pajamas. You're going to be dressed for school. And all you're going to have access to are your school books. And that's all you're going to have access to from 8 in the morning till 2.30 when school would end. And you'll get lunch at this time. There's no special snacks or anything like that. Lunch will be whatever you're served. That's just what it is. And um, because you were too ill to go to school, you also don't get to do any of the after-school activities mm -hmm. or play with friends or go out or anything like that as well, too. So life's going to get a little bit boring here for you for a while. And my goal is to make school start to look enticing because home suddenly is not very enticing at all. Home is going to start to become a pretty boring place. Now, this is where parents will say to me things like, oh, but I just, I feel so bad for little Johnny. Yeah. Right? Yes. Parents, uh, that tough love is hard yeah. for parents to do. It, it is difficult. And, and so here's what I talk about it. I approach it from an economic point of view. Moms or dads or moms and moms or dads and dads go to work or stay home in order to keep the household functioning, right? And there's a paycheck involved, and that paycheck is used to pay for, 
you know, mortgage or rent or gas or utilities and cable and internet and all those things that we need. Uh, Johnny's got a role in the economy too. His, his role is to go to school. And if Johnny's not participating in his role in the economy, Johnny doesn't get the rewards that Johnny would normally get, right? Because yeah. the rewards Johnny would get for going to school would be access to the internet to play games and access to a phone to call friends and mm -hmm. do all of these things. So if Johnny is now not participating in the economy to do those things, then we start to remove those things from Johnny's life and Johnny has to go toward earning those types of things, right? So that's, that's part of the motivation aspect. Of course, now you have another aspect on that too. You want to get Johnny talking to a therapist, right? You want to get Johnny figuring out with them, what are they anxious about? And then what could I do in a session to help role play for Johnny, whatever it is they might be afraid of. So let's say Johnny's afraid to get called on by the teacher, right? <clears throat> because, mm -hmm. you know, what if I get a wrong answer? Okay. Or maybe he's been bullied or humiliated before, so he doesn't want to have it happen again. That could be too, right? I've even treated people with selective mutism who are afraid to even speak oh, yeah. at mm -hmm. school, right? So we then design a, a behavioral program to help Johnny figure out how to deal with the things that he's afraid of. If it's uh, one, one young lady that I treated who had selective mutism would speak until her foot crossed the threshold of the school. Then she would not talk wow. all day in school. Wow. And then the second her foot crossed the threshold again to go outside, blah, 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 back again. And so uh, I worked with her family. She loved American Idol. She loved watching it. It was on twice a week. I don't know if it still is now, but it was back then. And so I set it up that, all right, here's what you're going to do between now and the next American Idol. You're going to say hello to one teacher a day. That's it. Wow. That just, just that word, hello, one teacher a day. If you do, you get to watch American Idol. If you don't, no American Idol. And she looked at me and said, my parents aren't going to make, make me do that. <laughs> I said, well, I looked at her parents. I said, all right, well, this is what your daughter now thinks, that you are not going to hold her accountable. So it is now your decision to hold her accountable or not. And, and I can just offer, you know, what to do in this kind of situation. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it is your decision to follow through. So she did not watch, and her parents did not let her watch American Idol. And she oh, came into my office, and she was steaming. Mad. Oh, she was furious. Yeah, I bet. And uh, I said to her parents, congratulations. Excellent job. Proud of you. Good work. And I looked at her and said, we're going to keep the same thing again. Hello to one teacher per day. You can identify which teacher it is. They're going to report back to your parents that it happened. And if you do it, you'll get to watch American Idol again in two days when it's back on again. She did it. She watched American Idol. Next week, it was hello to two teachers. The following week, it was hello to three teachers. Wow. We, we slowly and gradually, over the course of that semester, got her to speak in school. But it, it wasn't all or nothing. And, and this sometimes is where parents get frustrated, right? They, they want, you know, right now, now, now you know, do right. it, do it. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, 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 we're not. If, if that could happen, all you would have to do is yell at your child and then they would go to school and speak. Right. right. Um, it doesn't work that way. It is, it is a learning process. It is a feeling it out and learning that you can handle the experience kind of, kind of thing. So where did something like that come from for for this specific selective mutism like yes. in that situation uh don't know <laughs> and and frankly wasn't as concerned about where it came from as i was what are we going to do about it yeah like if it was a traumatic event like some teacher made the class laugh at her and said that's the wrong answer and she was humiliated yeah. i feel like uh you know so you don't focus on the past you're just thinking whatever that was we don't have to go over it we just correct it or just 
move on. Yeah, because rarely is it something. I mean, oh. it, not that that doesn't happen, but it could just be that she might have stuttered a little bit mm-hmm. when she said something and and she thought somebody laughed and mm-hmm. that was enough, right? To to get her to think. Now, why? I I don't know. But I'm far more concerned about what are we going to do about it instead of where did it come from with a lot of people. And and even in the therapy I do, I very often offer to people, if you, if you want to figure out where this came from when we're done with therapy, I'll stick around and we'll talk about it. And if you want some sessions figuring that, no one's ever taken me up on the offer. They're just mm-hmm. happy that they figured yeah, out right, now right. what yeah. to Who do about it. Who needs to go back and on. rehash? Now, if it is a trauma, I want to go back to what you said there. If it is a trauma then definitely we're going to use that as part of the therapy, right? And we're going to have to get people doing something that's difficult. If you were stuck on an elevator, I need to get you on an elevator. Even Mm -hmm. if that was a really traumatic experience, my ultimate goal is going to have you to ride an elevator again. And even to ride the elevator you got stuck on, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do. Exposure, yeah. Yes. So I do a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. I was going to ask about that. I'm always big on asking what CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is used for because it is the retraining yeah. Well, thinking. there's there's various forms of CBT. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, <laughs> and then there's cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm more on that end of mm-hmm. of spending less time talking and trying to get people to really spend more time doing. You know, like if I can't talk you out of being afraid, I don't know how to do that. You know, in, in 22 years of being a psychologist, I, I, maybe I missed that class in graduate school. I don't know. <laughs> but I still haven't figured out how to talk somebody out of being afraid. And right. you've been thinking about this since you're 13. So yes, I'm keeping, I that, have been I'm keeping since, that in mind, since too. I was 13 I can't get years rid old. Of that. Yes, I have been. This has been on my mind since I was 13 years old. Uh, so because I, I don't know how to talk somebody out of being afraid, what I have learned to do is behave people out of being afraid. Right. By getting people to do things that are uncomfortable and learn that they can handle them. Or that they're going to be okay. Well, they do them. Maybe. Okay. Because I I can't give a guarantee to someone they're going to be okay. Right. right? So here's my problem as, as a psychologist, if I tell you you're going to be fine or okay. And then one time you go do something and something does happen, I've lied to you. Oh yeah. So I don't use the word okay or fine or anything. I specifically say to people, you can handle it. You may not like it. It may not be comfortable, but you're going to learn that you can handle it. Also important of what you're saying is that parents, especially, you know, these early age kids, let's say, that are refusing to go to school, mm-hmm. have to realize that they have to take part, too. They're not part in the whole uh, behavioral it's a system, retraining. Right? It's a system. It's because a system. I know parents mm-hmm. can say, um, my kid won't go to school. I'm going to send him to therapy. They have to really, the tough love is tough. Yep. And I would think, you know, we always say that if somebody, even an adult child, let's say, is refusing help, the, one of the best things to do is to, if, you know, if you have a 45-year-old son who refuses to get help and you know, is really lost, you can get the parents should get help themselves yes. to gain the strength yes. for the tough love to yes. be able to do what they have to do, whatever the situation calls for. And so in this way, I'm saying, I, I see what you're saying is so strong for the individual, for the kid, yeah. but it's also so great for the parents because in how they say, oh, hey, I feel so badly taking away American Idol if they have you a a therapist saying this is what this calls for enormous help yeah and making it happen it's a safety 
it, it, there's a lot of safety. And again, it goes back to safety seeking behaviors. Do I want to feel good right now? Or do I want to feel good later on? And in anxiety, you want to feel good right now. And in treatment, you work toward feeling better later on. Oh, interesting way to put it. Yeah, right? I agree. The safety behaviors are all immediate gratifiers. So avoidance, reassurance, distraction, substance use, compulsions, all feel good right now in the moment when I do them. So I have this, this surge of anxiety and I do anything that I possibly can to bring it back down as quickly as possible. And what I try to do through therapy with exposure and response prevention. So I purposely expose you to things you're afraid of. And what is response prevention? Elimination of safety-seeking behavior. Sitting in the experience and living with it and learning that I can handle it and that eventually it will either fade away to nothing or even if it does stay anxiety-provoking, I don't have to read this anxiety-provoking experience anymore as dangerous or bad. It just is what it is. It's anxiety-provoking. But that doesn't have to mean that it's bad. Or, you know, I, I can be uncomfortable. And, and I don't have to run away from being uncomfortable. Right? It's, in, it's interesting. I, I love what you're saying because when I look at the school aspect of it, what do a lot of schools do when children are misbehaving? Even though we know these aren't behavioral issues, mm -hmm. right? They're brain issues. They punish them. They suspend them. They um, ask them to leave school. They put them in a therapeutic schools where I feel that if they were treating the child or helping to be part of the group that treats the child, it would be more su successful outcome. Especially yeah. at an early age. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was really interested in all those kinds of things, and it's why I opened the first school anxiety school refusal program in the Chicago area back at Alexian Brothers uh, Behavioral Health Hospital up in Hoffman Estates, and we established that program almost 15 years ago now, where wow. mm -hmm. uh, we looked at some of the research being done by Chris Carney out of uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and taking a look at what are some of the reasons why children are refusing to go to school and really taking that information and building a program around that. So in our program, we would do you know, therapy groups, but we would also have two hours of school a day. And so that put people into a school situation, but an easier one than maybe being in the big classroom and changing in the hall and everything like that. But we even had some kids who were afraid to go to gym. So we had a, we have a gym at the hospital. So we we did a gym class, right? We had kids get changed and, and do gym and, wow. and practice that too. So what, whatever it is you're afraid of, we want you to do. There were, there were times that, that we would have people, anytime they were called on, give a wrong answer because they yeah. were afraid of making a mistake. So their job that day was to only make mistakes, mm. right? Uh, a right answer was actually incorrect, and an incorrect answer was great. So we'd have clever. people. We'd have people give up and give speeches in front of folks, and we'd start with, "You could literally sit in your seat, not look up, and make any eye contact, and just read a paragraph from a magazine." And we would go from that as the start to standing up in the middle of the room and making up a speech as you go along that purposely had mistakes in it, and and tried to make the audience laugh. And this is in front of their peers? Yes. Wow. And, and it's in front of their peers, though, that also are there. It's in the hospital that yes. have that are struggling, too, yes. which is kind of interesting. You yeah. know, in the gym class, you're with other kids that hate gym, too, that yes. are humiliated. You know, they, they don't, they're in the same boat. Right. So that must be a double, a double dose of positive. And they're learning from each other. Like, yeah, right? that's okay. really interesting. Well, here's all these other kids who are afraid of speeches, and 
now I'm in front of them and then they're going to be in front of me and we're going to learn from each other and, and support each other. In this and experience. it takes such a weight off your back when you realize you're not alone, even if you're a young yeah. kid to realize other kids yeah. feel like this. I'm not a freak. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was great. It's really clever. The whole thing. And then we had liaisons whose job was to help them return to school because we weren't successful until that kid was back in class. Right. So that was always the goal of how can we get you out of the hospital and get you back into school? Did you have a time frame? Or did you just say as long as it's going to take? Did you, and was it three weeks, four weeks? It was around three weeks was pretty typical for people. And we'd have that, that back to school meeting and, and then we'd, we'd start the transition. So maybe you were with us three days a week and back at school two days this week. And then next week you're with us two days and you're back at school three days next week. And, you know, we would, it it wasn't just cutting people off. We were, Mm -hmm. we were trying to make it a, a successful transition experience as well too. And, and, that's something that everyone has to realize as well, even parents too, that this is not a just, okay, you saw a therapist, you're fixed now. No, this, there's a transition experience involved in all of this, getting people sure. back to doing things that they are, they are afraid of, right? Yeah, interesting. Well, I've, I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, getting back to the original first word here, anxiety, how oh, much, yeah. Yeah, how often, yeah, and, sure. and we're talking about kids and, um, you know, it's any age. But how, how, what is a percentage, if you could even come up with it, of genetic anxiety? It's a genetic component that gives someone anxiety. I mean, um, I have a son, Julie and I talk about, we each have, have our own personal experience, and I have a son who, I'd say when he was about 13, was diagnosed with um, major depression, anxiety mm-hmm. disorder. And, you know, it's kind of a building, uh, just telling just seeing that he needed help. It was, it was more of a struggle was getting to be more of a real struggle. But I have a picture of him, a photograph when he is two sitting on a sofa. Uh, I know our whole family was together for something and he has a look of real fear, you know, like anxiety on his face. And I know we were doing nothing particularly that day. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's in his pajamas. It's just, uh, it's just a look. And I just always look at that, early picture that early photograph thinking it was even then mm-hmm. you know over nothing no peer pressure yeah. no job no worry about money no you know you're two well your your own worst enemy could be your own brain and your mm-hmm. fight flight or freeze response and the way it's interpreting whatever it is that's going on in the moment so if if your brain sees danger even if no one else sees it you're experiencing fear right and you're going to have that that fight flight or freeze response kind of reaction whatever it is. So there's, of course, the diathesis stress model. And basically, what does that mean? All of us have genetic predispositions for certain things, but we need the right environmental stressors to kick something off. So, you know, someone may have a very high genetic predisposition toward fear, but never have the stressor that leads to it. Mm-hmm. Someone might have an amazingly low genetic predisposition to fear, but have a huge stressor that kicks something off. And the rest of us are somewhere in the middle. So mm-hmm. it's not just genes and it's not just environment you know because you have people who come from amazingly difficult environments who are wonderfully successful you have people who come from what would see very privileged environments who just seem to not be able to function right and mm-hmm. so it's it's not just one or the other you have that that mix that goes mm-hmm. on interesting mm-hmm. people who are are trying to seek treatment whatever age is it always going to be therapy or will it be therapy medication? How do you determine the best path? Yeah, it's, 
It's really both, um, and and a very personal decision too. So I'm, for me at least, I'm a proponent, and and I became a psychologist and not a psychiatrist because I wanted to start people on the therapy process first because there's no side effects to to therapy. Good right? point. Um, as as if either of you, and I know your your sons, and if they've tried medications, not only do you have the effect of the meds, but you have the side effect yeah. of the meds as well yes. too. Huge, and you have to huge add component that. to the whole yeah. the whole topic. Yeah. So I always try to start with therapy first because there aren't any of those side effects that you have to deal with, and then there's no other meds to take to deal with the side effect of the first med or anything like that. Now, can therapy be augmented by medication? Absolutely, right? You, you can see that happening. And to me, the greatest experience then would be that whoever the prescriber is has a release of information to whoever the therapist is to make sure, you know, everybody's talking, everybody's on the same page about why we're doing what we're doing. It's that relationship, that collaboration that is so very important and not just a siloed experience mm -hmm. of, you know, well, I'm going to give you this, but I don't care what your therapist is doing or, you know, meds are stupid you and you should only do therapy. You know, it's, it's not any of those things. That's not what we want. We want a team effort working together to make sure that everybody's in agreement. And it does make sense to have therapy first, like you're saying, to be able to evaluate also what's going on. You know, the baseline evaluation of what does this look like? Yeah. Right. Now, uh, you might ask other people and they might give you a different opinion that mm -hmm. this is this is my kind of take on it. And if people ask me, that's that's usually where I go. And again, I can't I can't give medication advice. I'm not a I'm not a prescriber or anything like that. But mm -hmm. I have I, I at least know that once you start potentially on a medication and then you do have the side effect experience of it as well, too. That's just more things that you have to yeah. deal with. Yes. And it can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. You, you, you said exactly what I did. I created, like, I was the CEO of my son's team. Yeah. And I used to do email blasts. Right. His doctor, his teachers, his therapists, anyone that was involved in his treatment, I did daily, sometimes weekly. So we were all on the same page. So everyone knew what the other person was doing. Mm -hmm. And I would say in that time, it really benefited him. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And you have to, right? And and it can be difficult, of course, to to play that role because that's a that's a stressor for a parent as well, too, right? To have to be a <laughs> yes. coordinator. I know I'm speaking to the choir here, <laughs> yeah. for the two of you, and for anyone listening as well, too. But it's really, really important, and it, it touches on something you said earlier about um, "Here's my kid, please fix them." Is is not the goal of therapy? It's here's our family system. We need help. Mm -hmm. Where can all of us work together to get the most optimal results for this whole experience so that all of us at the end feel like uh, this is working and and the the whole car, you know, all cylinders are mm -hmm. functioning the together. way that they should yeah. be and not, um, well, I only work on cylinder six. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't do any other, I just work on cylinder six. So you got a four cylinder, oh, too bad, I can't even see you. You know, you know you, you've got you've to get that team together. I thought of that question because, you know, for years facilitating support groups and talking to so many parents um, just from my own work, there are parents of young kids that'll just say, I'm getting a therapist. I can't deal with this anymore. They, they're thinking they can't handle it. Here you go. So they have to know that take the therapist safety advice seriously because yeah. you need that and, whole, and whole package. 
getting a therapist also isn't failure as a parent, right? Yeah, it I mean, takes that... a while to, but sometimes parents are in such shock right. that they are in this situation. Yeah. And it takes a while to say, you know, first of all, the stigma, that's a whole nother topic. Oh, there's that. But, mm-hmm. uh, but it's so important for them to know that they have to be, you know, look at this as the therapist helps the whole family. In, yeah. You know, spe- specifically, specifically this kid, but, or, or whomever in the family, yeah. you know. If, if you 45-year-old, too. Yeah, yeah, that could be, too. If you send your kid to a um, music teacher because you don't know how to play the instrument they want to play, that's not a failure, failure of you right. as a parent. So if your kid has panic disorder and you know nothing about it, sending your kid to a therapist who specializes in anxiety and panic is not a sign of failure for mm-hmm. you as a parent. I think it's a sign of success to be yeah. able to say... I don't know what the heck to do with this. Uh, I got to find somebody who does. Yeah, you know, that's, so, that sure is the message to drive home yeah. to every, every parent. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you're you're not a failure for finding an expert to help you through mm-hmm. a situation. You're you're amazingly smart and resilient and reliant on on experts, and that's that's the way that it ought to be. That's such a nice way to put it. I hope everyone's listening that needs to because that was. It's a perfect way what you just said. Me too. Are there different anxieties that you could label? Not that you want to label them all, but so that people understand if they're hearing this, maybe they see something yeah. themselves and they think, oh, that's me. Yeah. Well, there's your your panic. Let's talk about panic first, because panic can underlie all anxiety experiences. So panic attacks aren't diagnosable in and of themselves. They're just a kind of physiological experience that you might have. So you might get the heart racing or the chest tightening or the breathing that gets heavier and and potentially feels more shallow. You might get numbness or tingling sensations, chills or hot flashes. You might have derealization or depersonalization. You could feel unsteady or faint. All of these things, four or more of those kinds of symptoms happening all at the same time constitutes a panic attack. And, and that can happen to anybody. I mean, you do... You, you might have a panic attack and, and just have one. I mean, I'd say almost every human being will have a panic attack at some point in time. It or does. related to something. I mean, yeah. I, I, am, I, I have had panic attacks driving when mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going. I mean, yeah. I drive all around the city, uh, all over the place where I know where I'm going. But mm-hmm. if I had to drive from my office in Skokie to Palos Hills yeah. to give a speech... I literally, one time I had to pull over. It's like, I don't know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it was, I, so it's related to that. I wouldn't say I have panic disorder. Yeah. I had a, over the one thing, right. my driving. Yeah. So that's not panic disorder. Exactly. So that's, that's no problem. Now, when you get to panic disorder, it is because you're having panic attacks that just keep happening out of the blue and uncontrolled. And then you've got a month or more worry about having more of them and what the consequences of them will be. So that's panic disorder. Then you've got the phobias, which is a specific fear of a thing, right? So I might have a fear of elevators or escalators, spiders, snakes, uh, driving, uh, emetophobia being one of the biggest one I've ever treated, which is the fear of throwing up. It's the I've number never one. Heard, I've never heard that term. Yeah. The emetophobia, the number one phobia we treated when, when I was at Alexia in, in the partial hospital program, the number one phobia we treated there was really? emetophobia. Yeah. Wow. Lots of people with a fear of what if I were to throw up or see somebody throw up and that would make me throw up and, and it, it's very overwhelming for people. And then you have generalized... Full, full disclosure, that's my younger sister. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, you, 
then you have generalized anxiety disorder, which is worry, right? You know, consistent, constant worry about things. And and I've always said anxiety is two words, and those two words are what if, followed by the worst case scenario you can possibly think of. And, and then... Um, uh, what if's cousin is yeah, but what if as well. So we, we have those two things. So uh, when when you're just consumed with worry and then you have six months or more of that along with various physiological sensations, difficulty sleeping, difficulty focusing or concentrating, muscle tension, irritability, that would meet criteria then potentially for generalized anxiety disorder. And then you have social anxiety disorder, which is a fear of being judged or evaluated in social types of situations. So those are the things now that really fall into the anxiety disorders, along with kind of the more broad care categories, you know, uh, anxiety disorder induced by a medical condition or drug or alcohol use induced anxiety or an anxiety not otherwise specified kind of thing where, where you don't meet any of those maybe specific categories, but anxiety is definitely interfering in your life and it's playing a role. That's kind of where you would see all the, the various kind of diagnoses. And then we have the pullouts now of trauma-related disorders in their own thing, and then you have the OCD-related disorders in their own category as well, too. This is a, just a full, full knowledge of, you know, we always knew yeah. what anxiety was, but what an explanation. It's really interesting. And uh, like we are saying, I don't know one person who doesn't have any of this, I'd like to know who that is. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, me too. But, uh, me too. We'll write a book together. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, really interesting. Really, really, uh, you know, we could go on and on, talk about this for another 10 hours. Well, let's cut to, and um, we're going to do a part two with Dr. Patrick McGrath. So if you're listening, please tune in again and follow us on Behind Our Door. Thank you, Patrick, for being with us. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. And please, please download, like, and follow our podcast so you can keep up with our upcoming episodes. We have some amazing guests. We have some amazing conversations. You will not want to miss it. If you have questions or comments, please find us at behindourdoor.mail.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening. Thank you.